Okay, tonight we're going to be in the book of Job. And as I mentioned to you before with the book of Job, we know that God said right off the bat that Job is a just and upright man, and he's awesome, and God loves Job. We know the devil hates Job, and we know that Job's faith is being tested. He lost his loved ones. He lost his wealth. He's got physical infirmities with great physical pain. He's bemoaning the day he was born. He's going through trials that most of us couldn't even begin to comprehend, the loss of everything. And his three friends have come to visit him, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they were silent for a week. And then after their silence is broken, and Job laments the day he's born, we begin a sequence of conversations that are, well, there's three rounds of these conversations sort of going in circles. And in the first two rounds, all three of these guys speak one at a time. Job responds to them each time as they do it. So it's round one, round two, and round three. And in round three, only two of them speak, not all three. But this is a good portion of the book of Job. It gets us toward chapter 30. So we're in this part of the book now where these there's sequences of speaking and response. And we saw last week Eliphaz speaking and Job responding. And if you recall, in the end of the book, God reproves the counsel of all these guys. And he makes them ask Job for forgiveness and Job to give an offering and intercede for them. That being said, if you consult commentaries and just look at face value what the guys are saying, quite a bit of what these three guys say to Job is in principle true about God's nature, about righteousness and sin, creation, and these sorts of things. The problem is part of what they say is not true, and their application of attacking Job with these things is incorrect. So we need to establish that. And the big difference between the three guys and Job is the three guys are talking about God like ivory tower theologians. Job is talking to God. So, again, these guys, for the whole book, they talk about God and talk about theology and their ideas of God, but they never are talking to God. In Job's case, he's talking about God, his theology concerning God, but he's also talking to God personally. And that's a big distinction between these guys in these conversations, and it gives good insight as to where they're at. One guy is loved by the Lord, has a relationship with the Lord. The other three... They're the guys that know about God, but they don't really talk to God in this story, and that's noteworthy. So tonight, as we go forward, we're going to go through quite a bit of text because a lot of what they say is really kind of redundant, repetitive, and rambling. And if you've ever had those conversations where you have to listen to someone talk for 20 minutes and you just have to listen to it and take it, <laughs> it's that kind of a conversation. There is some really good stuff in our text tonight, some really good stuff, but we're going to... We're going to get to it, all right? So, as I said, we're in poetic books now, not historical books, so bear with me. If I was teaching psalms, I could teach quite a few psalms in one night, so there'll be a fair bit of reading, but we're going to get some good application, and we start tonight with number two, Bildad. We had Eliphaz speak, now we get Bildad of the three friends. He's speaking, and this is what he says in chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad, the Shuite, answered and said, How long will you speak things? These things and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind. Does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgressions. That one had to really hurt. Verse 5. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you 
and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, your latter end would increase abundantly. For inquire, please, of the former age, and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you in utter words from their heart? Can the papyrus reed grow without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water? While it is yet green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of those who forget God, and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish, whose confidence shall be cut off, whose trust is a spider's web. He leans on his house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. He grows green in the sun, and his branches spread out in his garden. His roots wrap around the rock heap and look for a, a place in the stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have not seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth others will grow. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoer. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and dwelling place of the wicked shall come to nothing. So in chapter 8, this is Bildad's opening statement, whatever, he's trying, whatever point he's trying to make. The key thing, though, is where he implies that somehow his sons had done evil and God killed his sons. First of all, if you're ever in a ministry situation counseling to someone and ministering to people who've lost children, you would never, ever say this or imply this in any way, shape, or form. First of all, because you don't know. You just don't know. Even if all the circumstances say, like, this person was evil and this is what they brought upon themselves, like maybe they're committing robbery or something, we don't know. You just don't know. It's a very dangerous place to be God in the universe where you're judging jury of people dying in different circumstances and to conclude somehow evil was involved, even if there's an appearance of evil in that situation. And if there is, who are you to ever say such a thing? Why would you ever say such a thing? And then in verses 5 and 6, if you would earnestly, we're going to get a couple more ifs from the next guy in line. If you would earnestly seek God's favor, if you would, you know, if you would be, if you were pure and upright, you, he, he would now awaken for you. So they're basically saying, we're in a place where you should be, and if you would do this, and if you would do that, then you'd be restored to God, implying that he's done something wrong. Now, we know the beginning of the book says, Job is upright and just, and God was proud of him. So their presumption of what they're saying is based upon their perspective of the events, which is incorrect. They're condemning Job, they're condemning his sons, and they're being incredibly, he's being incredibly insensitive to the situation to even imply such a thing, even if it were true. Especially because we already saw that Job would arise early and present sacrifices and offering to intercede for his sons in case they did do evil. He already said, the thing I feared the, the most has come upon me. We don't need this guy. So there is an application. Don't ever be this person, ever. Because there's always more than you think you know. And I speak as a minister. This stuff comes my way fairly often in ministry. You get pulled into things like this where there is suffering and heartache and people have died and they've died because of drugs and they've died because of suicide or these other things. And, and I, you, we don't know. Or they're struggling because of drugs and alcohol. They're struggling because of this bad relationship or evil men. We don't know why that person's pushing a grocery cart on Beach Boulevard. So to be really careful not to be this guy and make these conclusions as if we're God. Job's going to answer to him. So Job's going to answer him in verse 9. He says, truly, I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? Well, that answers 
The answer to that is Jesus, through faith in Jesus, but that's not really the full context, but I've got to say it at least. Verse 3, if one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart, mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? Yeah, that's true. That, that works. We just sang a song about that. He removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and Pilates, those are constellations, and the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past me, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Pretty good theology right here from Job. Who can say to God or to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The, the allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I are righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with the tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but he fills me with bitterness if it is a matter of strength, indeed he is strong. And if it is of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, I would prove, it would prove me perverse. I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore I say he destroys the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given to the hand of the wicked. He covers his face of its judges. If it is not he, who else can it be? Well, that's a good point. He's basically saying God has a final authority and ultimately things do, you know, are allowed because God allows them to happen. This is where people come with the idea like, why does a God of love allow evil, right? You get that all the time. But we're self-determined in this universe and in a fallen world, there's a self-determination that runs with evil in humanity. And yet God, you know, with grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that's part of the whole process that he wouldn't have fully understood that we do with New Testament theology. Verse 25. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They pass like a swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say I'll forget my complaint, I'll put off my sad face and wear a smile, I'm afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and do not let me dread and do not let dread of him terrify me that I would speak and not fear him, but it's not so with me. So this is the first part of Job's response to what Bildad said. Now, you can just even compare Job, what Job's saying compared to Bildad. Job just is pretty clean, systematic, it's truthful, it's accurate, but we see his suffering and his heartache as he's going through it. And I, you know, I, in the book I bring this up, and with Jeremy Kent, we were talking last week, I said, Jeremy, I'll never forget being in the room with you and Melissa when the doctors said her vital organs were shutting down. It was about one in the morning, and they said she's going to die. Her vital organs are shutting down, and she'd been in a coma for day, a couple, at least a couple days, medically induced, eyes closed. And it was just me and Jeremy in the room. 
with Melissa. It's about one in the morning, and she's going to die that day. We're on the clock on the day that she's going to die. And Jeremy said to me, verbatim, I know that Jesus wants his bride, but I want my bride too. That's Job right here. Like, that's the heart of someone just being ripped apart. This beautiful woman, we were at the wedding five months before at North Coast Horizon with Bob Botsford and, and hundreds of people. Phil Wickham was there, all these wonderful young people in his beautiful wedding. And he turns to me and says, I know Jesus wants his bride. I want my bride too. Life can be so crippling in the testings, trials, and tribulations. And when we focus on the character of God, it helps us through the difficulties with God. And so we see that Job kind of comes off track here with his limited knowledge of God in his timeline. Now, Sam and I were talking about this earlier today. Job and his friends, their theology would be creation, that God created everything, fall, that Adam sinned and fell, thus death entered the world and all sinned through Adam, a promise of Redeemer, Genesis 3, wicked people, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And they came off the ark to the ice age for about three centuries of an ice age in a post-flood world. All people came from the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and we're about 500 years after the flood with the time of Job and Abraham's alive at about the same time. But we have no indication that the insights that God was showing Abraham, God was showing Job at the same time. So his theology is limited to, I'm created, God created everything, man's a sinner, man, God judges evil men, but Noah found grace. That's his theology. Keep that in mind. See, we have the fullness in the New Testament. And his theology affects how he thinks. So he brings up this whole idea about a mediator, there being a mediator, or a lack of a mediator in his case. He just doesn't know. See, it's about this time that God's going to tell Abraham to take his son, his only son whom he loves, Isaac, and go to Mount Moriah where Jesus will be crucified in 2,000 years and offer up his son as a type of that. So we know in Hebrews that when Abraham and Isaac went up to Mount Moriah about this time that Job is going through this, and they came, when Abraham took Isaac, he said, the boy and I go yonder, we shall return. Now, God told Abraham, you're going to offer up your son, the son of promise. But Abraham spoke faith that he knew they'd come down the mountain together. And we're told in Hebrews, the New Testament, that he knew that God would, even if his son was struck down dead, that God would resurrect his son. And we're told, thus he received them back from the dead in a figurative sense. So in other words, when Abraham offered up Isaac about the same time Job was alive, it's a type of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Abraham had that in the Abrahamic covenant with what God was showing him. Job didn't have that same degree. But that son, Isaac, is a type of Christ and one who's the mediator. And so here Job says, I mean, the, look, at the, look at the wording in verse 32. God's not a man that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on both of us. Now, that's where he's incorrect. In his limited theology of where he, when he lived in time, he's incorrect. Because we're told in 1 Timothy that there is a mediator. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We do have a mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And in the Gospel of John, 
John makes this so clear in the first chapter that no one has seen the Father, but the only begotten of the Father, the Son, he has declared him to us. Jesus is the mediator. We can't look upon God in his glory, not in the Old Testament and not in time, space, and matter. But the only begotten, the Father, the Son, he has declared him to us. Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the Son of God, but he's the Son of man. He's born of the Virgin, the Immaculate Conception. The mystery of being God and man. In a universe of trillions of galaxies, on a planet with billions of people, with a timeline of 6,000 plus years, that's what happened when Jesus walked the earth. Emmanuel, God with us. But Job doesn't know that. So for us tonight, we're like, wow, Job. And see, when you're just crushed, and you know that, God has a, that God's allowed it, you can lose sight of the hope of God's character, and God ultimately doing good. See, he acknowledged that God was righteous, but he just didn't know, or he just lost hope, that God still had a plan for what is good. And there is a distinction. Isn't it good tonight to know that we have a mediator, Christ Jesus? Yeah. Yes and amen. Jesus would say on that last night, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but through me. He's the way. He's the Father revealed to us. He's the mediator. Thus, we're not here groping in the dark. We're not going through testings, trials, and tribulations going like, I just don't know if there's a mediator or how can I work through this with eternity and time and this heartache and sorrow. No, Jesus is always with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He'll carry us through the deepest valley and he'll be above us on the highest mountaintop. That's good news. That's the gospel. That's the good news. There were shadows of it in Job's time, but we have the fullness we do have a mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And that's why we gather here on Tuesdays and Saturdays for 19 years. That's why we sing these songs. We're not singing to politicians or world leaders. We are singing to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who died on the cross for our sins, who is our mediator. We're not groping in the dark. Your worst day with Jesus can't even be compared to your best day in the world without him. And that's why Paul said these light afflictions are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to come in Christ Jesus. They don't seem like light afflictions, but they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to come. Jesus is our mediator. So that's a big one right there. Now, we read on in chapter 10. Job has a few more things to say in this sequence here with the second speaker. My soul loathes my life. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show why you contend with me. Now see, here he's talking to God. I will say to God. Here's this distinction between Job and these other guys. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress? <laughs> he's saying what he's thinking. And that's okay. I said, God's open 24-7. Some prayer lines are open 24-7. Most people, most human beings are not available to you 24-7. But... Job's pouring his heart out. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man that you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin? Although you know that I'm not wicked and there is no one who can deliver me or deliver from your hand, your hands have made me and fashioned me in intricate unity, yet would you destroy me? Remember, I pray that you have made me like clay, and will you turn me into dust again? 
Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. Which is very true, because he was blessed, right? Verse 13. And these things you've hidden in your heart. If I know that this was you, if I sin, then you mark me, and will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. If I am righteous, I cannot lift my head. I am full of disgrace. See my misery? If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion, and again you show yourself awesome against me. You renew your witness against me and increase your indignation towards me. Changes in wars are ever with me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no one had seen me. It would have been as though I'd, I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease, leave me alone, that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return, to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death, without any order where even the light is darkness. Well, this gives an idea of maybe how people thought of death back in his timeline. Like just, there's such a, you know, if you really meditate upon death, there's such a finality to it in the, in the sense of time, space, and matter, right? Like there's such a finality to it. I've been involved with people dying for 35 years as a pastor. All the memorials and grave sites that I've done and ministering to people just the deepest, just the deepest levels of grief. There's such a finality to it. Sometimes it doesn't seem real. You know, like there's been times I walk up and one time Danny Donnelly and I did a memorial for his good friend. Uh, they did recording with. And his friend and the girlfriend had a baby and the baby died like shortly after it was born. And they were just, they, they weren't believers and they were just distraught beyond measure. And Danny's like, geez, like such a good friend of mine. And can you do the memorial? I'm like, of course I can do the memorial. And it, it was it was a Saturday after we'd started this church, and I remember we met at Costa Mesa, and, we, and I drove the church van with Danny. We went to Long Beach of this, you know, cemetery in Long Beach, part of Long Beach I'd never been to, and we pull up, and there's like 40 people, and they're just, they're just, they're, they, they didn't know the Lord. I'm like, oh my goodness, like, what am I going to say? Like, well, I definitely have credibility in this situation, and I am telling you, I'm worried about what I'm going to say. Danny's going to sing a couple songs. We get out, and I'm looking at uh, numbers a little less than all of us. We're close, it's about 50 people. But the casket, man, this little casket, a baby casket. And I got to tell you, when Danny and I walked up, and I saw that baby casket, it was just like, bam, like the deepest gut punch imaginable. It's like, oh. And my fear of man my fear of the circumstances was just gone. I've got the authority of heaven. I've buried my son. I've had that casket. I've lived that casket. I know the king of kings, and I'm going to give you comfort right now. With the hole in the ground for a little casket and a little casket, I'm going to tell you where you're going to find hope this day. There was such a finality to it. Death is so real. It's so real for people who are gone and never coming back, and it's so real for those who are grieving for the people that are gone. It's so real. There's times I've buried adults from this congregation, and I've been graveside when they go in the ground. I'm like going, it's just too real right now, and that just can't. That's not the end. And your 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 faith is just like 
it's, death has such a powerful blow. Even with Jesus at Lazarus' tomb, what does it say? He wept. And that's Jesus in this scenario. And even though Lazarus came forth from the grave, he still died later on. They, you know, if the sisters outlived Lazarus, they buried him twice. They grieved twice, two times for their brother, if they outlived him. That's a thought you didn't think about, right? How about the widow Nain? Her son was raised up. What if he died again a second time? What if Jairus' daughter died before Jairus, and he had to bury, essentially, his daughter died twice? Death is so final. And so when Job says it's darkness upon darkness, yes, because if you've ever ministered in a situation where people do not have faith and they're dealing with death, it is very, very dark. They either try and laugh it off, go to a drinking party. I've been at that memorial before I was saved. My 18-year-old surfing buddy died in a car wreck. He was drunk and the car rolled over him. I remember going to the memorial at the Methodist church in Encinitas, and then all of his friends went to a bar to go get drunk. And I went there, and I was like, this is just insane, and I left. People don't know how to deal with it. Well, one thing's for sure, for all of us in this room, since all of us are at least over 10, we're going to deal with it in the next 90 years, every one of us. And our loved ones are going to deal with it when we're gone. See, when I'm 80, Hannah's 51 and Zippy's 24. And Luis, my youngest granddaughter, is 17. So if I die when I'm 80, we've got a high school senior dealing with the death of her grandfather, and you've got a daughter in her early 50s dealing with the death of her dad. Just add the numbers to your life. So to keep from having the totally dark, 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 you see all those words, shadow, shadow, dark, 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 you just put Jesus over everything. You put Jesus over your mind, over your life, over your marriage, over your kids, over your grandkids, every day. Jesus is the light and life of men. So you put him over all that darkness and you say in Jesus' name. And you put Jesus, you put Jesus between you and the darkness. You put Jesus over the darkness. Yes and amen. Now we read on. So now the next guy, the third guy, Zophar, has got something to say. All right, so we've heard from Eliphaz, Bildad, and now Zophar is going to speak. Fortunately, he only gets one chapter too. So let's read what he has to say. He says, then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you have said, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you. That he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Shoal, the grave that itself, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by in prisons and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not consider it? For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey colt is born a man. Who even talks like this? I'm like... I just picture Job going like, what are you trying to say? If you would prepare your heart, verse 13, and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery and remember it was as it was waters that have passed away and your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, 
you would be like the morning. And you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest in safety. You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail and they shall not escape in their hope, loss of life. So after he says like the empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's cold is born a man, I just going like, like, what did you just say? You ever had these conversations, especially religious conversations with people like this? Like, weird religious people? They're like, what, what are you trying to say? Like, like, you can't even figure out, like, what are we talking about right now? You know, like, and just when Job's going, like, a, a wild donkey, a, a man, a, what, wait, can you say that again? So he sets him up with, like, spaghetti talk, spaghetti limericks, you know, just talking in circles and platitudes that mean nothing. And then he goes, if you were right with God, this wouldn't be a problem. If you were right with God, this would work this way, and then it would all be made better. And it's just, it's, it's so condescending. So yet again, we're just reminded, don't be this person. No one wants to be around this person. Keith Randolph, who we, many of you know and just love, like in, in his 100 Secrets of Success, he has one of those days, he says, he brings up a point that has really resonated with me the first time I read the book and ever since. There's no monuments to critics. You ever notice that? We don't, we don't build monuments to people that are like movie critics or people critics. Or, no one cares. There's not a lot of people at the memorials of critics. People that know it all, people don't want to be around them because they're inferior to the know-it-all. So we just can't be this person. When I, when I, for all the years I've walked with the Lord and read the book of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, whenever I hear these guys, read these guys every couple years, for decades now, I just go like, normally I'm in a hurry, I just go like, yeah, 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 yeah. But as I said, we're not in a hurry with the book of Job. But it's like, it just reminds me, don't, it reminds all of us, don't be this person. Now, Job says in chapter 12, he responds to him. Then Job answered and said, no doubt you're the people and the wisdom will die with you. <laughs> yeah, you got it all figured out. Yeah. But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? I am one mocked by his friends who called on God and he answered him. The just and the blameless who is ridiculed. A lamp is despised in the thought of the one who is at ease if it is made ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by his hand. But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, in whose hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind does not the ear test words and the mouth taste its food. Wisdom is with aged men and with length of days understanding. Now Solomon the Proverbs says, yes, if they're godly, not so if they're not. There's plenty of people that are aged and are not godly and don't have understanding. They're still fools. But the idea that you should get wiser as you get older is a good one. Verse 13. With him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. If he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he withholds the water, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With him are strength and prudence. The deceived and deceivers are his. He leads counselors away plundered, and he makes fools of the judges, and he loosens the bonds of kings and binds their ways with a belt. He leads princes away plundered and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. He uncovers deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. 
He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless wilderness. They grope in the dark without light. He makes them stagger like a drunken man. This is pretty accurate. You know, I mean, Job, you can see how Job, at least we can follow what Job is saying, right? Like just consistency. And most of it is, is fairly consistent with what he would have known about God and what we know about the character of God. But now, tonight, we get to chapter 13 and 14. And now we get some of the most important verses in the book of Job. And this is where we've been heading all night. So let's pick it up in verse 13. Job's still speaking. Behold, my eyes have seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not in fear to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. But you forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be silent, and it would be your wisdom. So this is a pretty well-known verse from the book of Job. When someone were to survey the book of Job and look at certain verses and say, that's a, that's a standout verse in this book that gets our attention this one is a big one. Verse 4, you are worthless physicians and know that you'd be silent. So all that we've been saying about these three guys, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and their, their condescending speech, their, impl- their subtle implications of what they're saying in accusations against Job. And Job just says, man, you are worthless physicians. It would just be better if you'd been silent. Remember, they were silent for seven days. That's when they were doing well. And this is something I've learned in ministry. There are awkward times of silence. There's awkward times of silence in life. We live in a busy world, and we don't need like noise and commotion. But silence is good. It stills the mind, it stills the soul, and it brings clarity to things. And in grieving situations, there's just, sometimes there's just absolutely nothing to say. When you walk in the house and someone's terminal, which I've done more than once, you feel like you have to, some, have to have something to say. Like I know most of the Bible and I feel like I can say this or I can say that. And you just, you want to say something. You want to fix things. You cannot fix certain things. Certain things are going to run their course and play out the way they're going to play out. So I'd say like a really good application coming from Job, the one who feels victimized, by all this ridiculous talking in circles, is he's doing us all a favor. And what he's saying to the church in 2024 is, you know what? Don't feel like you have to say something. It's okay just to hold their hand when they're dealing with bad news. It's okay to be a shoulder to cry on. And I've learned. It took me a long time. I'm still learning it. Sometimes your presence, being a follower of Jesus Christ, you bring the presence of the Lord in the room. The Spirit of God is with you. And sometimes there's just, you don't need to say anything. Sometimes you just being there shows people you care. And they don't need to hear from you. A similar thing in ministry is, I learned this at Big Calvary and at Vista where lots of people come to church. And it took me a while to figure this out. But some people come to church to meet with a pastor because no one else will listen to them. It's true. But they know they can show up at 3800 South Fairview Avenue and they can make an appointment with the pastor and they can talk for an hour and the pastor's got to listen to them. And I used to think people come to meet with the pastor because they're looking for solutions. So I'd be listening, 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 and I'd try and offer solutions. That's not what they're there for. Some people have no one that will listen to them and they'll literally go to church and big churches, they'll often tie up the pastors every Sunday after service because they got someone that will listen to them. 
So some people just want to talk and have someone listen to them. And in many cases, some people just want silence and have someone sit with them. And that's a good position. Your presence with the Lord, your empathy and compassion in your heart can be felt and demonstrated sometimes without even saying a word. We went to convalescent homes back in the day early on with our youth group here 15, 16, 17 years ago. We'd sing Christmas carols and stuff. Tanya Harper at the time was a deacon's wife in our church. And uh, we went to some low-end assisted living places, you know, the smell and all that. And as she went around, I noticed something she did. She didn't do a lot of talking. You know what she did? She touched. She touched. She just touched people and smiled at them. And you see these people just like, she didn't do much talking. She just touched and smiled. It's a good lesson here. God forbid anyone say of you and me when we've left the room, what a worthless position. Because we couldn't be silent. The presence of the Lord with you, in many cases, will be enough. And if you feel you need to speak, really pray in your mind under your breath before you do. Because once you're ministering to someone in a very grievous, heartbreaking situation, is you can't get those words back. And then you say things that are foolish, and they hurt. And they can hurt very much when your intention was not to do that. I don't think these guys set out intended to hurt Job, but they did hurt him very much. Verse 6. Now hear reasoning and heed the pleading of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out? Or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you. If you secretly show partiality, will not his excellence make you afraid? And the dread of him fall upon you? Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Your defense, defenses are defenses of clay. Man, he's saying some strong words here. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then, then come on me what may. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will trust him. Even so, I'll defend my own ways before him. So here again is another one of the famous verses in the book of Job. Though he slay me, I will trust him. That's a powerful phrase. Years ago when the church started, uh, Jason Wright was our, our youth pastor and one of our worship leaders, and he wrote this song. And he sang a song to WG, Though He Slay Me, I Will Strike Him. I was like, and I said, Jason, I really appreciate you writing that, but don't sing that. I think he's the only person ever, he was singing to the youth group. I, I think it's probably a little hard for 13-year-olds to have you sing to him, Though He Slay Me, <laughs> I Will Yet Trust Him. I go, it's a, it's a good song, but I, I don't think it's the right fit. It's a, it takes a very mature person in the faith to understand that God can slay you and you can still trust him. But really, isn't this what Jesus said? Not my will, but thy will be done. Father, please let this cup pass from me. Nonetheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Why did Jesus come? He came to be slayed by the Father. Even up to the time, 18 hours before the cross, Jesus was crying out to the Father if there's any other way. But he committed himself to the Father whom he considered faithful and he embraced the cross, despising the shame, and he was slain. And he was slain for you and me. So it seems hard to say, though he slay me, I will trust him. Jesus is the, the author and finisher of our faith. 
And he's the one that shows us that example. This is very similar to like Meshach, Shagrin, and Abednego saying to you know, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow down to you. You can throw us in the fire. God's able to deliver us from the fire. But even if he doesn't, we are not going to bow down to you. This is, a, this is a faith that says, you know, see, anyone can praise the Lord when they're the world champion and it's all going good in prosperity. Let's see you praise the Lord when he's slaying you. That's when we find out what kind of faith you have. That's the faith that wins souls to Christ, by the way. When you stand strong, when it seems as though God is slaying you, that's when he's working through you and you have your greatest testimony. How, you, how we handle heartbreak and grief is the, the, the power. And again, I go back to Jeremy Camp. He was so crushed when he lost his wife. I mean, we were there for all of it, the memorial, everything. He would just break down sobbing time and time again when people didn't see him. And he felt like he was slain by the Lord, but then he wrote, I will walk by faith. He wrote, I still believe. He expressed it. And now, 23 years later, people still come out in the thousands to see him because people want to see a man or woman that's been slain by the Lord who is praising the Lord. That's the glory of the gospel. That's the testimony that is the most powerful testimony. I appreciate when you praise Jesus when you're rookie of the year or you won the Super Bowl. I appreciate that. We're not taking anything away from that. When you just got a million-dollar bonus, I'd be praising the Lord too. But when you said to your, one of your best friends, I know Jesus wants his bride, but I want my bride too, and Jesus took your bride. And you get up 23 years later and you sing, I still believe. Man, people, that's why Jeremy Camp draws thousands and thousands, and that's why his ministry is timeless. We cannot get from here to eternity without testings, trials, tribulations, and tragedy. And how we handle those things is the ultimate evidence of our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. It is the greatest testimony of our faith in Jesus Christ and is the enduring legacy of our life lived for Jesus Christ. And it is our glory on the day of Jesus Christ because these light afflictions are not worthy to be compared to the eternal glory that's coming when we get to glory. We don't sign up for these things. They just, you live 80 years, they just, they just happen. And you know, you think, is this just me? No, it's not. Because any human being that's lived 80 years in any generation, any timeline, in any country, any society has had to work through these things. But praise the Lord, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven in Jesus to, to get through it. We have his presence. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. We have his promises that are sure. They're, they're, they're the surest thing there is. And we have the hope of heaven. That's an, a hope that's an anchor to the soul. That's what we have, body of Christ, WG. Don't be afraid to be slain by the Lord. And honestly, I must tell you on a closing thought tonight. I, like all of you, there's times I'm afraid to be slain by the Lord. But I found whenever he's slain me, it's always worked together for good. And there's more of him and less of me. And I've got one foot more with that much more energy moving toward the kingdom than the heavy foot holding back in time, space, and matter. Now he closes out with verse 16. He shall see my salvation. He shall be my salvation. For a hypocrite could not come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. And he was. Who is he who will contend with me? 
if now I hold my tongue, I perish. Now here's a closing prayer for Job. Only two things do not do to me, then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not the dread of you make me afraid. Then call and I will answer, or let me speak, and then you respond to me. How many are my iniquities and sin? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro, and will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Man, Job's just in a tough spot, right? But when you lost your children, your wealth, and your physical pain, we can understand it's a wonderful thing that this book has a happy ending, and it's an example for us. But if you're ever in a dark place like this, just know that Jesus is there with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you, even when you're talking like this. Yes, and amen.